Hello, everyone. Bruce Stephen Holmes for Timeless Voyager, where the knowledge is timeless and you are the Voyager. Today's guest is author Timothy Conway. He says, after a sudden, vivid, and completely life-changing spiritual awakening occurred at 16 years old, his heart-mind exploded open in the non-dual realization of the great formless reality that is doing everything and being everybody. Timothy says that ever since then, this life has been gratefully devoted to freely sharing with anyone sincerely interested the profoundly healing and empowering truth of infinite open awareness, the real reality right here, closer than the mind, and right now, always, the true reality before you can even think about this self. Soon, he was introduced by a highly psychic Western sage to the path of Who Am I? Suprapersonal self-inquiry and urged to make a deep study of the Advaita Vedanta sage Ramana Maharishi and other sages of Advaita, Zen Buddhism, and similar genuine paths of awakening East and West. Today we will learn directly from Timothy Conway what one can expect from these paths that purport enlightenment as the final destination. So fasten your cosmic seatbelts and join me, your host, the Timeless Voyager. Welcome to the show, Timothy. A joy to be here, Chris. Thank you for the invitation. And the lovely introduction. I appreciate that. You know, uh, uh, I want to tell everyone, for a while, I was kind of late to the party, so to speak, but I was able to attend a few or many, a couple of, I don't remember how many, five or so of your satsangs that you had been holding in Santa Barbara for years. And they were beautiful, and I wish I had known that about that earlier, but I got to see you before you left town. Yeah, it's always a joy when people would come together in satsang. The word means company of the aspirants interested in truth. would be an elaborate uh, definition. Sangha means group or company or association, and sat means the divine reality, the one who alone is, the supreme truth, the true reality underneath our sense of phenomenal realities of body, mind, self-sense, world, fellow beings, all of which are phenomenal. And because they're phenomenal, they're always arising and passing moment by moment. So the deep truth of Advaita and Zen Buddhism, or Chan Buddhism, as was called in China, and all the great mystical realizations from our greatest sages and saints worldwide, male and female, uh, ancient and contemporary, is that this reality is being each of us. We can't exist, we can't move, think, function, utilize language, comprehend language, have intentions without this vital reality that's, uh, as I always say, emanating everyone, animating everyone, and orchestrating everyone and everything. Uh, And it should be really clear and uh, what I often say, subvious, self-evidently obvious that there's this reality here that's 
the source, the very substance of anything that could be experienced by a human, an animal, or some celestial being. So practically, pragmatically, what this means is that in each moment that we don't have to be fully attentive to some task or duty, some aspect of our loving and caring and sharing in the world, when there's odd moments where one doesn't have to be specifically focused, uh, and I will promise you that over time, even your focusing and efforts and activities will feel permeated by this uh, realization. You can check in and have a sense of what is this moment made of? What is this experience made of? Let me stop you there for one moment. When people hear this information, and, and I, I, I'm speaking from my experience many years ago, it first it starts out as seeming awfully complicated, because when to, to explain something like this, and you've done such a, a beautiful job of it already, it flows. But once a person who is not familiar with it starts to digest the information, I think the main question that comes up is, can I do it? And meanwhile, what they don't realize is they've been doing it the whole time. They just didn't know. What is your comment? Yes, it's, uh, the Chan masters used to joke that is what became Zen when it went to Japan and Sun Buddhism when it went to Korea and Tian when it went to Vietnam. The old Chan masters from the Tang and uh, interdynastic period and the Song dynasty, they would marvel with this beautiful sense of wonder and whimsy and gentle good humor how people felt estranged from their true nature, the Buddha nature, the source nature of that, which is the substance of it, everything being experienced in the very sense of being an experiencer, a mate. The John Masters would say, can't you recognize, can't you see already what's always already been the case? that there's this marvelous reality. It's been doing your life, quote unquote, that is the supreme life has been doing each and every individual life and since birth, uh, since before birth, from conception, you know, when mama's egg cell and daddy's sperm cell united, and you had a zygote uh, within a short time, and then an embryo, and then a fetus, and then it was born as a baby. What has been the massive, incredible intelligence and vital power, uh, the wondrous, miraculous ability or capacity to grow this cosmos from the original pre-Big Bang inflationary moment out of the no thing? That's how physicists talk about this the last 25 years. And then your, quote, life. I say yours in quotes, because what is my life? I didn't create this. Uh, that is the ego sense, the narrow, limited ego G, as we can call this endearingly, this functional self sense, this viewpoint on reality that reality conjures up, emanates, animates, and orchestrates. So one can, through this process of self-inquiry, uh, just open up to the subtlest, subtlest intuition, this profound knowing by being, 
because you can't grok or perceive your true nature, your formless, unborn, original nature as any kind of phenomenal object. You are the noumenon, closer than close, what you are behind your eyeballs, so to say, and prior to thought uh, and feeling and so forth. This is open reality. You know this to be true. And most people shrink and recoil from this sense of nothing. They try to fill what they think is a void with various addictions and attachments and excitements and entertainments. But if we simply check in each moment, and each moment is actually vanishing, so there's this arising and vanishing of phenomena moment by moment, but what you are as noumenon, formless, open awareness, original reality. What you are is this undefined capacity for all these experiences and relationships and knowings. So it's a knowing by being that you are the absolute. You are That's, the business, no, awareness, aliveness, supreme. I'd like to interrupt for one second. Sure, sure. So when a person um, becomes aware of this, it appears to me, from my point of view, my my uh, perception, that you can either s relax and realize that you are already doing it, but you're not really doing it. You could, let's say, it's almost like watching a movie. You could say you have to have a, a willing suspension of disbelief because you could also try to control it which would be the ego jumping in and, and saying, no, 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 I've always been doing everything, I'm in charge. But what, what I believe you're saying is that, okay, may I, let me say it as a question. Is it, is it the ego's issue that it feels like it must be in control of something that it has never had control of in the first place? Yes, and the sense of functionality can happen out of two different modes and motives. Um, in the kind of egotistic, egocentric, selfish mode, there's a, a strong sense of clinging and grasping to a sense of me and my agenda and my possessions and, and what I want to happen in relationships and my doings. And then there's an alternate way in which ego G, this blessed functionality that the absolute creates through an individual, personal consciousness, uh, associated in this case with a physical organism, a human body, oh, a certain amount of physiologically uh, determined mind. So we can speak of psychophysiology. All of this is just pure functioning. And it can happen with a very light, uh, free sense of egoji, of just being a functional person, knowing that one's true reality, the unborn reality, the continuous reality, which is persisting 24-7 and timelessly, is not a phenomenon or set of phenomena. And has no narrow focus of egoity, egoity, we can call it again endearingly. And so this is like 
body, mind, ego, G, free to just be a functional instrument for the divine. One so, yeah, absolutely. People have, a, or again, I'm speaking from the point of view, hopefully, of, of the people that are watching. So sure. people have this, have this. Um, I think many people have this mistaken concept that you have to change what you were doing for this to be part of your life. And 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 I, I know these things probably seem silly, but the, but I think this is something that is going on quite often. I come across it a lot of people. Yeah, as an interviewer and just a human being interacting with fellow beings, we hear of the frustrations and losses and traumas and pain and and the suffering of all that pain and trauma and loss. And naturally the egoity, this functional viewpointness that reality comes up with to experience life not just absolutely as totality and no thing as pure spirit, pure being, awareness, bliss, absolute. No, the absolute is playing as individual consciousnesses, the supra-personal to God or the divine or the Buddha nature or the Tao or the Brahman, Atman, the reality self, the ancient Upanishads speak of, our oldest wisdom text. They're not speaking about the impersonal, that would be like clouds of hydrogen and helium gas, which is actually what most of the physical cosmos is made of, or the tarmac out on the driveway or parking lot. That's impersonal. And then there's a sense of being a person interrelating with fellow persons. This could only be dreamed up, emanated, animated, and orchestrated by the supra-personal reality, which is capable of playing as these gazillions of different persons, these personal consciousnesses or viewpoints, or jiva, as they call them in India, the soul, um, the individual soul, which has a unique life stream and it associates with many embodiments, what we call uh, rebirth. So this reality is always here. This is always the animating power, lighting up and vibrating, <laughs> shimmering your world, making experience seem so vivid, uh, so real. There's a reality that allows experiences to seem so real. But guess what? We really do have to distinguish because uh, all of our phenomenal experiencing, all of our sense of being a me, a personal consciousness, a viewpoint, all of it disappears in deep dreamless sleep, a few or several times each night, depending on how many cycles of sleep. And then in between the deep dreamless sleep, where you basically disappear, the world goes to oblivion. There is no thing in phenomena to be experienced. In between that are these subtle playing phenomena and experiences in what we call dreams, which uh, psychophysiologists going back in the 1950s in the Stanford uh, University uh, sleep labs, they realize, ah, there's two different kinds of sleep. The deep dreamless sleep, where the brain waves slow way down to stage three, stage four. And then there's this rapid eye movement sleep, which is highly correlated with dreaming. Well, guess what? 
Western psychologists, physiologists discovered this in the 50s, as they say at Stanford, our most ancient wisdom texts, the Upanishads of India, were already distinguishing between the waking state, dream state, and dreamless sleep state. And they're all cycling. So there's no continuity to the personal consciousness sense, the sense of being a me, uh, when that deep sleep, dreamless sleep takes over. And of course, the same thing happens in anesthesia states. Uh, it also happens in coma. People come out of coma, and it's kind of like, whoa. The personal consciousness was gone, but there's that deep down sense of continuity. And this is the truth every time we wake up out of a deep dreamless sleep state. If someone awakens us out of that, uh, there's a certain amount of disorientation. And then you realize, ah, you know, the physical world, the so-called waking state, uh, I must have been in sleep. But no one just freaks out because there is a radical discontinuity between the waking state and deep dreamless sleep. And you would expect that when people came out of it, they would be kind of shocked and alarmed that there's a world again. There's a reality that's providing the underlying continuity all the way through and between lifetimes and so forth. And this is the deep, profound, true self, the self of all small case as cells. This is the supra-personal reality underlying the moments and periods of personal consciousness experiencing. So we can trust that this great reality has always been here, doing us, being us, uh, vibrating all of our uh, subatomic realities, atomic uh, particles, uh, molecules, cells, organs made of cells. <laughs> Actually, the physical body, it's about, depending on your size and mass, it's about 50, 60, 70 trillion cells, and most of them are actually friendly bacteria in your gut. Uh, most of the rest are actually cells floating along in the bloodstream and other channels where fluids are happening. And then there's only a, <laughs> a very small percentage, maybe a few trillion cells that are non uh, Let's put them this way. They're, they're native tissue cells, actual parts of what seems to be ongoing structure in your body. Uh, so the body, we, we have this glib word, the body, but it's really a bodying process that's, you know, again, from the major components of anatomy and organ systems all the way down to the subatomic wavicles. <laughs> they're energy manifesting as both particles and waves, which is totally paradoxical. And then on the mental level, we talk about my mind, or I know many teachers berate disciples for their ego minds, but what's the mind? It's a series of arising and vanishing, rising and passing, uh, sensations, perceptions, emotional responses or reactions, volitional uh, impulses that arise, so now let me just let me just go on that for a second. Yes, sure. Who is having these thoughts? Okay, I I I experience these as my thoughts, but I've been studying the Brahma Sutras and I noticed that. I, okay, I, well, I don't know exactly what I noticed, but it appears 
that these are not my thoughts. They're thoughts that are coming through that I either look at, attach myself to, or, or ignore, but that's my experience. What would you say about that? Again, functionally, it makes sense for biological evolution, for organisms to have a sense of me, myself, and mine. Without that, you know, in ancient times, if you're a species uh, a kind of organism, you know, be it a bug or a bird or a baby, this or that, if you don't have a sense of me and my come in, when a predator animal comes in and wants to gnaw on your bug eyes or leg or your, like, wallaby arms or whatever, if there's no sense of... Uh, possession and taking responsibility for this organism that the personal consciousness or soul is associating with the species simply would not continue that everyone would kind of eat each other off and then there would be no uh not much in the way of species certainly think of human beings if we are walking along in the, the under the forest canopy and some predator big cat a jaguar or a tiger or whatever jumped out and with the obvious intention with the teeth bearing and everything looking very hungry and fierce uh, wanting to make uh, this body if only like say the arm uh, it's lunch uh, if there wasn't a sense of protecting this organism and taking responsibility for kind of me territory the species wouldn't have continued they wouldn't have moved beyond a very very small if we survived at all, small group of tribal uh, hunter or gatherers. So there's a certain amount of uh, benevolent, functional egotism. And it's also not just selfish. You know, if we're walking down the street and we see a little, little child, say a four-year-old, wander out into the street and we see oncoming traffic, we treat that child's life as our own. We have, that, we have this ability to become more... Uh, non-local and expanded, and and uh, that's how people wind up identifying with certain groups, and then or nations. And uh, I don't want to talk about politics today, but we see how there's a cultic way of identifying with a group in a very dysfunctional way uh, that then makes all the other people the outgroup, the other, the enemy, and you know all of our great sages have uh, role modeled and encourage this inclusivity of you know love thy neighbor as thyself the one self is being each of you and so we're all in this together uh the essence of life is essence as ellen watts once said with his uh, typical pithiness um so there's nothing wrong with egotism when it's just being pure functionality for the sake of this organism and for the welfare of all beings as far as possible. Um, so there can be a relaxing into and as this functioning. One doesn't have to be uptight about there being personhood arising, uh, egoji arising. Uh, egoji, as some of you may know, that little uh, suffix G, J-I, is usually appended to like Babaji or Swamiji in India, Guruji, 
they use this quite commonly. And a dear, dear old Danish mystic named Emanuel Sorensen, who spent 45 years in India, he met Sri Ramana Maharshi when he was young. He'd been a, a, a Scandinavian who came down was in England working as a gardener for the great poet, sage, statesman Rabindranath Tagore. And Tagore met him, observed him a little bit, and realized of all the people at this big party or function, this Emanuel Sorensen was like this profound young mystic. And he encouraged him, come, come to India. I will introduce you to people. I will uh, let you get yourself established there where you can live this deep mysticism. And that's what happened. Uh, I, I met Shunyata toward the end of his life when he was in his upper 80s. He was hit by a car in his 90s. That's what killed him, the coroner. Uh, did an autopsy, said this man has the internal organs of a 30-year-old. He could have easily lived another 30, 40 years. That was shunyata, was the name he took. It's just a Buddhist term, which most people translate as emptiness, but I found some of the best Buddhist scholars prefer to translate shunyata as openness, because on the near end of all you're experiencing, this is open, undefined, spiritual, formless, profound reality the great being, awareness, bliss, Sachidananda. Well, coming back to Shunyata, just to finish that story, um, once I was discussing with him uh, in our humorous and gentle, uh, very free way, um, aspects of spirituality, and I mentioned how egotism can sometimes arise in this more contracted way to usurp spirituality. He just kind of put his hand on my... Uh, and he said, ah, ego G. And as soon as he said that, it all lifted, that even contracted egotism is somehow ultimately just a momentary or temporary state where beings get self-contracted, selfish, uh, full of hatred or fear or lust or grudge or resentment, and that all of this can just be melting away each moment each moment, if we trust that the one who's in charge, the one who is doing, quote, your life, is the divine life. The one who is having your thoughts is the profound intelligence, the source of all thinking, doing, feeling, planning, remembering. Our most ancient wisdom text that really first introduces non-dual spirituality the realization there is a single reality here responsible for all the functional polarities in the cosmos, male and female and light and dark and positive and negative charge in the atom and so forth. The ancient Upanishad, the Brihadaranyaka Upanishad, says very clearly that our true nature, the Atman, the supreme divine self of all selves, the supreme divine Brahman, uh, which comes from the word bri, which means to grow or emanate, uh, conjure up, dream, a cosmos. This Atman Brahman is the unseen seer of seeing, the unheard hearer of hearing, the unthought thinker of thinking, the unfelt feeler of feelings. There's many other beautiful wisdom sayings in the Uriyadadanya Upanishad, but that makes it clear that we think of ourselves as the sentient being, you know, my thoughts and my body sensations, but our sentience arises from the one 
sentience, the divine sentience, or consciousness rooted in the supreme prior to all phenomena, awareness. So absolute awareness gives rise to the universal play of consciousness, which is how it's like the field in which all these worlds and universe or multiverse and all these sentient beings, apparently sentient beings, personal consciousnesses associated with bodily forms, physical plane or subtle plane beings like our ancestors and nature spirits and archangels and archetypes of the deity, mother, father, God. All of this is in the field of universal consciousness sourced in and made of the absolute awareness. And each personal consciousness is, again, like a viewpoint, a um, kind of a nexus uh, within the field, the network. And in the interrelationships, it's possible to have persons expand out of their selfishness through empathy and deep feeling and loving kindness. And they begin to have transpersonal experiences, like when two people are in love, you know, a husband, wife, parent, child, a grandparent, a child, and child, grandparent, dear friends, close friends. Uh, you begin to allow your mind fields and your subtle body energies to uh, permeate and interpenetrate and have uh, mutual resonance. And this is what gives rise to so many of the transpersonal uh, consciousness phenomena in the great universal field of consciousness. So, for instance, all the paranormal kind of uh, experiences are all part of this transpersonal, which means kind of across the divide between persons. Trans means like across. That's why we speak of transportation crossing between like point A and point B. Uh, you know, all this transpersonal psychic, parapsychological phenomena uh, are all rooted in the deeper truth of just one big consciousness field. And consciousness, again, to repeat, is in turn, and from the beginningless beginning, universal consciousness arises out of this absolutely solid, seamless, structureless, profound, absolute being. Awareness, bless, Sachidananda, as the Hindus say. Well, I've been going on for a while. No, it's all right. What I'd How else to... uh, would your viewers, uh, <laughs> how do you think they, uh, they grok this? Or what are the kind of issues that come up? Because there's many aspects of what it's like, not just to realize direct sudden enlightenment about our absolute nature, but to have this be lived moment by moment and in relationship at work and in creativity and in the various states of waking, dream, dreamless sleep. For instance, one can become more lucid of deep dreamless sleep, and then it's like you're in samadhi, to use the Sanskrit word, what Western Christian mystical tradition would call the rapture the true rapture of just being aware as God, because God kind of totally permeates and characterizes the personal consciousness with the divine awareness. Let's talk a little bit about yeah. your book, or the, or the book that I'm aware of, um, hmm. because 
it seems to me that the most important aspect of this, and I think I'll bring it up, women of power and grace. The reason that I would like to talk a little bit about that, or certainly a lot about it, is that really, when you think about it, and, and obviously you thought a lot about it because you're the one that wrote the book, um, that book has had a, a major effect on a lot of things that you have written even before it and after it. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Actually, in the late 80s, after I'd finished my doctoral dissertation, looking at the criteria one can find in the textual literature, uh, you know, like lives and teachings of saints and certain scriptures, whether it be the ancient Upanishads or later incredible works of India like the Yoga Vasishta and the whole massive, massive body of uh, Buddhist texts and the smaller but very profound Taoist texts going back to Lao Tzu and Zhuang Tzu and all these Western mystics of uh, the ancient Jewish world, including Yeshua of Nazareth, uh, later Christian uh, hermits and monastics, uh, male and female, out there in the deserts of Upper Egypt and elsewhere in Southern Europe. St. Benedict in Italy, founding the Benedictines, all the uh, medieval uh, Kabbalah and later Hasidic mystics of Judaism, and of course the great Muslim mystical tradition, the Sufis of Islam, uh, and so many native peoples, indigenous peoples, uh, might have had more limited kind of oral traditions. It wasn't until the modern era that we began to have anthropologists, for instance, and religious studies scholars recording uh, the teachings, the oral teachings of some of these great shamans and shamanesses worldwide, uh, healers. So what they're all coming forth with is there is a way to be spiritually awake, spiritually really alive, to have your, to use a modern image, like your 20 watt light bulb become a zillion watt light bulb. Even a thousand watts would be a major, major life-changing uh, shift, would it not? So, and they know that there's different aspects of this enlightenment, this awakening, how your uh, emotions change. So if all these contracting, selfish emotions, you know, that are very obnoxious, frankly, to yourself, if you're clear about it, let alone to fellow beings around you. Um, no, one can have all of that get healed and become more whole. This is radiant love. I once heard this say, Jean Klein say, there's only one true emotion. That is love. Because only love truly radiates out. So much else is kind of a contraction. Uh, even when you think you're like really high and joyous, it might be a state of giddiness. And the word giddy. Uh, that's kind of a contraction around me and my pleasure. So love is this totally relaxed, open, radiant um, power. And there's ways in which the mind can get cleared up by spiritual awakening. One doesn't cling to thoughts obsessively. One does not perseverate on things in the past. One uh, you know, doesn't get too hung up on what the future is going to be like, say, craving for a certain pleasure coming up in the future or getting really, really overly anxious about a uh, upcoming situation that seems like a threat or an imminent loss. Uh, 
so much of the mind and the body will relax and open with true awakening, authentic opening up to the absolute reality that's here and everywhere, the omnipresent self. So after writing my doctoral dissertation about all of that, it's like 535 pages, and that was the edited, abridged version, so I didn't have to saddle my uh, academic readers at the university and the Cal Institute of Integral Studies where I went and did my MA and PhD. Um, I cut it down a bit, but after moving beyond that, I was thinking of the next project, and I had been intrigued. Uh, I won't mention names, but an author who wrote a book called, he actually edited it and got essays from different people or book excerpts, it's called What is Enlightenment? And in the appendix, he said, but one of the problems is there just don't seem to have been very many enlightened women. And I think he named like 10 or 12 women. And I thought, this is outrageous. You know, the four volume uh, hardcover old, what was it, 1950s, uh, one of the editions, Butler's Lives of Saints, the Catholic Saints, mentions hundreds of enlightened women, profoundly saintly, God merged, God surrendered kind of beings. And I also knew of, you know, hundreds and hundreds of enlightened women from the Buddhist traditions, the Hindu traditions, the uh, Sufi mystical traditions, the Baal Shem Tov, the great founder of European Hasidism in the first half of the 18th century. He wanted his daughter to be the successor, the leader of his followers after he passed. They wouldn't accept her because she was a woman. So I knew about all this patriarchal, sexism, misogyny stuff. So I spent about four or five years, up until around 1993, because uh, I finished the dissertation in 1988, I wanted to just chronicle everything I knew about the great women spiritual leaders of all the traditions, ancient, contemporary, East and West. And so when I finished, I realized this is very unwieldy. It's about 1,200 pages, because I included about 400 pages of their teachings as well. And so I decided to create this book, what you flashed on the screen earlier, the cover showing the beautiful modern era mystic of India, Ananda Mahima, who dropped the body, as we say, in 1982, in her upper 80s. Uh, she was like the guru to the gurus of India. You know, these big Mahakumbha Melas, they wanted to go revere Ananda Mahima, uh, all these gurus who came with their entourages and followers. So um, I started off with a few Catholic women, a few Eastern Orthodox, Russian Orthodox Christian women, a great Sufi Muslim saint, Hazrat Babajan, and then four women from India, including the hugging mother, Amma. Uh, this book actually was the first book to introduce Amma to the book trade in the United States and Europe, uh, the last chapter. Um, so this was just like a small fruit, a more readable set of nine biographical chapters and where we have them, lots of teachings from these women. And uh, I would say about six of the nine women have a, a very non-dual, what in India they call Advaita, not two, but one reality underlying everything and everyone. Um, but then it took me years. I finally, in 2017, took that older project, that big 1,200-page thing, and I just 
made it available as a free online source. And I know some academics around the world read it uh, at academia.edu because uh, it's uh, the largest thing in, in text uh, that is in an online form. Uh, preserving and archiving out of gratitude for me was an act of gratitude to all these great, great women spiritual leaders and the sisterhoods and the uh, divine feminine archetypes uh, that arose over the centuries east and west. Uh, and since then, I've been working on a massive tome, India's Sages, two volumes, History of Advaita, not just among the Hindus, but the Buddhas, the Sant, the Sufi, the Sikh mystics of India, done toward the modern era. And then the second volume is uh, Modern Era, Sages of Advaita, Non-Duality in India. And I also have a, even more immediately a huge project on spirituality and film, massive number of documentaries and fictional feature films from around the world that express aspects of spirituality. One of the most important of which is empathy. <laughs> if we could all have empathy, we could turn this planet into a much more heavenly type experience than what it is for too many billions of humans and countless billions and trillions of animals, which is very hellish, like the way people eat. So shifting to a plant-based diet, they continue to subsidize and consume with every choice at the market or restaurant. A uh, uh, food industry that has someone said a few years ago, you could not come up with a more satanic food system than this system, uh, you know, where 99% of the animals consumed for food around the world are done so out of this factory farm situation, this confining, torturing, and callous slaughter of uh, somewhere around a trillion beings each year, if you include the creatures in the sea, hauled uh, up by these industrial trawler fishing operations and so forth. So, uh, yeah, if we learn empathy through great movies, <laughs> through contemplating the lives of the great saints and sages, by just contemplating who are our fellow beings, truly. We broaden the who am I self-inquiry to like, who are we, who are you? What is your true nature? You're not just a body. You're not just this object in my visual field. You're not just this thing out there in the consciousness field. No, you are the consciousness. Transparent for absolute awareness, the self of all, the reality of all. When we realize this profoundly, empathy becomes our true nature. Loving kindness becomes a natural, uh, radiating, emanating reality from this profound empathy. And we'll have tremendous sympathy for those in, in need and in pain, struggling. Um, so many of the enlightenment virtues, the qualities of authentic spirituality arise spontaneously out of this empathetic sense of the universal self, the one who is each one. I don't know how else to say all this, but uh, what does come out in kind well, of stream of consciousness is uh, hopefully very pragmatic for people. If it's your not, life changes, your relationships change. It's not easy to, to, to talk about something like the consuming 
of other beings is without being pragmatic. That's, uh, that's pretty pragmatic. Cool. It's now the easiest thing in the world to go plant-based. When I first started, when my dear sister who passed away at age 19, but 10 years later or so, when Ananda Ma, the one pictured on the cover of that book, uh, when she dropped the body one day before she dropped the body, she somehow transpersonally, parapsychologically granted this fellow a dream of my late sister who had passed away at age 19 in 1974. And uh, Ma had my sister sitting next to her in a little Hindu temple, a little more like a shrine. And I wandered into that temple and there was Ma, my sister, and an Indian couple. I didn't know who they were. And I sat down and Ma began to meditate us and then just rapture us up in pure light, pure bliss. And what, I woke up right after that. In the morning, about four in the morning, I thought, my sister's keeping very good company, her spirit. But uh, anyway, it was my sister. She gave me two great gifts. She stuck a guitar in my hand at age 13 and told, told me a few chords. She said, you can't just be meditating and be a mystic all the time. Learn music. Because uh, I had kind of abandoned and uh, almost forcefully it had happened to me through a series of knee injuries i kind of had abandoned the, my real religion and obsession when i was a kid and that was sports <laughs> basketball football swimming golf body surfing you name it uh and so my sister kathy stuck a guitar in my hand that later led to a lot of involvement in sacred music once i got a harmonium i began to sing hundreds of those bhajan or kirtan uh, mantras and songs. These bhajan songs are absolutely beautiful. Uh, I know hundreds of them. I could sing for you right now. They're just beautiful, heartfelt, spontaneous, lighthearted ways of expressing the beauty and power and glory of the divine. And uh, the other thing my sister did was she turned me on to eating plant-based. When I went out to visit her, uh, I was there the month at the end of which, in August of 1974, she went swimming out in the ocean and was never seen again. All sorts of people thought she'd been lifted up by the mothership, one of the big UFOs. I had just seen UFOs two weeks earlier, three of them zipping along in formation, you know. They'd, sometimes they'd be absolutely together, sometimes one would go, then the other, and utterly defying Newton's laws of motion. Sudden acceleration at massive speeds, stop on a dime or total reversal what flying craft do we have that could do that i could look out i was up on the uh low western slope of haleakala crater on maui island i could look over to kahalui town which is where the airport is for that island and i could see little prop planes moving very slowly you know uh and then these objects these ufos i called a chap over my sister had brought me up to this place where she had some friends. They lived in some kind of commune or something. And uh, I called this one chap over. I said, do you see what I'm seeing? They go, oh, yeah, man, the Space Brothers. We see them all the time, man. There's a newsletter here on the island about people's contact with these beings. Yeah, they're here to help us, man. I wasn't sure what he might have been smoking with his friends. I actually... 
never even, <laughs> I can't say I never inhaled, but I never smoked a joint. The reason I can't say I didn't inhale is when I was a junior in, uh, I'm sorry, a freshman at the University of California, Santa Cruz, when I'd be finished working at the food service at night and maybe playing music in the music room with my 12-string guitar or something, uh, hanging out with friends. I'd come back to my room, and for this one quarter, I had a roommate, a slightly older guy. He traveled around in Afghanistan and the Middle East and so forth back in the early 70s. Uh, he was about 23 or 4, and he was resuming college, and he had a buddy, and they'd smoke a ton of grass. So when I got back to my dorm room on campus there at the University of California, Santa Cruz, the air was pretty thick with a good old Mary Jane, marijuana. So I was probably getting something of a secondhand smoke contact experience of, of grass, but actually never inhaled. That spiritual opening at age 16, uh, which again, didn't happen with any kind of drugs, any kind of hallucinogens, even though everyone thought I was on hallucinogens afterwards, because everything felt like so wondrous, like life was being experienced for the very first time. Everyone seems so miraculous to me. Everything seems so miraculous. And it was just the objects, like the upholstered arm of the chair and where I do my homework, uh, in the bedroom, or the, I remember the red taillights of cars in LA freeway traffic, uh, driving home from high school. Uh, everything just seems so wondrous. But uh, God is available, don't need drugs, don't need to manipulate experience, just receive back. As one of my stagely mentors, Sri uh, Nizargadatta Maharaj in Mumbai, uh, receive back. Notice this personal consciousness, this viewpoint that seems to always be the all-occupying me. Gently open, receive back, and you'll notice that you are vaster, subtler than the subtlest. You are wide open, you are this uh, empty, full capacity for experiencing. You are the upstream source. Everything gets clarified. So much falls off. Uh, Dogen Zenji said the essence of Zen, which he had learned from his Chinese Chan master over in China, is body-mind drop-off. Doesn't mean they disappear, but they're allowed to just be functional instruments, and you don't feel like you're carrying them or you're inside them or trapped in the body-mind. There's this loosening, this opening, this freeing. This is true liberation. You know, I, I think that you have absolutely nailed the end of the show. There's no way that I could come up with a better ending, and I appreciate I bet you could. I bet you could, because the absolute divine self is being Bruce. <laughs> well, it's well, Timothy. What I'm really saying is that's a beautiful way to finish off a very, very well-organized and well-thought-out example of what I said in the beginning. But where does this lead to? And it leads to, I think, what you just said. And so unless you have something really phenomenal that you can come up with. I'll just add one little thing. 
then go for it's it. A play, it's a play on the name of your interview series, Timeless Voyager. When you awaken to this, capital T-H-I-S, the reality, spiritual reality, the divine, the Tao, the Buddha nature, doing everything and being everyone, you are the timeless in which these time moments are kind of coming and going. But you are this solid, structureless, timeless reality. And as for the voyager, the personal consciousness, the sense of me, has a sense of being involved in the great play of time. And we can speak realistically and pragmatically that there is a kind of cellular evolution, just as there's been cellular evolution. The soul is evolving and growing, learning, hopefully becoming more virtuous. That's the real name of this game, is the divine manifest through these instruments to turn these instruments over maybe lifetimes, maybe many lifetimes, into these beautiful, saintly, sagely instruments, godly expressions of what it's like to be uh, a human being or an angel being or something. So uh, there is a sense of voyage, but truly, and this is true of you right now, right here, your real nature, prior to thought, this open capacity for experience, this open awareness absolute, it's not on a voyage. It's not going anywhere. It's not becoming anything or anyone. Who you truly are is absolute being, isness, total awareness, sheer, pure, pristine aliveness. My late wife's guru, Meher Baba, who dropped the body in 69. My wife passed away six months ago. My dear beloved Laura, my wife of 28 years, she uh, and I always loved Meher Baba's saying, the journey is from here to here. No distance. So don't think that enlightenment or God or the spiritual reality is like out there or up there. It's this, this truth, closer than your eyeballs, closer than breathing. The capacity for all breathing and seeing and doing and functioning. And this is clear. The life changes and they'll eventually be writing about you as the great saint or sage who just lived a life of caring and sharing and loving and being kind and compassionate. Thank you for listening to the Timeless Voyager series. I really appreciate your watching and listening to the series on both video and audio players. One thing you can do for me as the founder and the creator of Timeless Voyager is to hit the like button. I know it sometimes sounds like such a silly thing, but you know what? Uh, it really affects how these shows show up on YouTube. And also, if you subscribe, that helps also because uh, that helps expand my ability to keep producing the content like the program you just watched on a regular basis. So subscribing and liking are free. And there's no obligation, and those very small actions on your part are greatly appreciated. My name is Bruce Stephen Holmes, and I hope that your own personal voyage through life 
towards development of your highest potential is a joyous and successful one.